would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, our systematic exposition through the inspired writings of Luke, lead us this morning to chapter 23 of Acts. We're getting close to the end. There are six remaining chapters, and these, are, these things are my opinion. I think they have a different feel than the earlier chapters. We've already noted that Paul's ministry has been up to this point on the offense, on the offensive. Paul has been uh, traveling from place to place. He's been spreading the gospel. Paul's been making decisions and executing plans so that preaching the cross, preaching Christ crucified would continue and spread everywhere that he went. But now, and through the remainder of the book of Acts, Paul is under arrest and his ministry changes. It does not cease. It continues, but it changes. It takes on a different form. Now, Paul's movements are decided for him. Paul will not choose where or how to minister. Paul is, we might say, Paul has lost control. Paul, Paul is no longer in control of the things in his life. Because of these changes, these final chapters have a different feel and a different flow. There's, there seems, this is my opinion, there seems to be more detail. There seems to be more minutia presented. And some of the time frames covered are short. It, the detail make this seem to me to be faster paced. Brother Jeff commented this week that these final chapters seem like a single unit, like these things should be read together. And I think he's right, uh, but we're not going to we're not going to preach it all together today. Don't relax. It would either mean that there was no detail in the sermon or it would be incredibly long. So we're going to take the next several weeks to, to preach through these things. But we need to understand that they all go together, that this is one uh, unit, if you will. The changes in tone and the changes in Paul's ministry, the loss of Paul's freedom might make it easy for us to say, it looks like there's a change in the providence of God. But I want to be very clear and, and I want us to understand, first of all, that God's providence has not changed for Paul. God's providence hasn't changed for us either. God's providence has not changed. God is sovereignly powerful over all things and his providence, when we use the word providence, we mean the outworking of his sovereign power in the world. The outworking of God's sovereignty in the world is his providence, his providential hand, what he is doing. When Paul made his own choices, made his own decision, for instance, when Paul chose to leave the synagogue in Ephesus and to rent a school. God's providential hand was no less active and involved than it is here when Paul does not make his own decisions and Paul chooses nothing. But there's a feeling that we have had, a feeling of autonomy. A feeling of, well, Paul's his own man, doing his own thing, making his own decision. And now from here on out, it's going to feel different. 
we often feel like we're in control. Like we're autonomous. Like we are pulling the strings, making the decisions. We accomplish what gets done. We feel that way. But at other times, we feel like God is in control. At other times, we recognize His sovereignty and we acknowledge God's providence. But it is important for us to remember that when we feel like God is in control, He's in control. And when we feel like we're in control, guess what? God is still in control. It's still God. So we need to understand this about God's providence. As for the text today, the thing that jumps off the page for us, I believe, in this chapter and in the remaining chapters, God's providence. God's providence becomes the main theme or at least one of the main themes here and on out. I feel like we've already seen God working, God's providential hand, and we've seen it in amazing ways as God has worked before Paul and behind Paul and through Paul. We've seen God work. We've seen his providential hand. But now we will see Paul with almost no control of his own life and his own decisions, but God is still in control. And somehow I, I know that his providence is not more powerful, it's not greater but it seems that way. It feels that way when Paul is out of control and God or not. Paul has no control and God is in control. For today, we're going to read a few verses at a time and work through it. But let us go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Sovereign God, who providentially works all things together for the good of those who love you and for your own glory. We come before you now asking your blessing on us this morning. Please bless your word for our sanctification and for the salvation of those who are lost. Bless the preaching, the preacher as well as the listener. Lord, we pray that you make us today, make us good listeners. Make our hearts fertile soil for the seed of the gospel, the seed of your word. We give you all praise and glory. Amen. Acts 23, we'll read the first five verses. Please follow along in your copy of scriptures. Hear now the word of the living God. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> exactly. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try, try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil against the ruler of your people. Verse 1 here begins with Paul looking intently at the council. The idea of looking intently is to see eye to eye. To be on level a level playing field and equal grounds. 
Paul is not coming before this council looking down with his countenance downcast. He's not intimidated. He's not afraid to make eye contact. This 70 member council that is mentioned here is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest ruling body in Israel. But remember, Paul used to be a member of the Sanhedrin. There's been a great deal of news lately in our day from our Supreme Court and their decisions. And while many in our country would like to complain to the court, Christians, we might want to express our gratitude and our support, especially for their recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. But whether someone comes to a Supreme Court justice to complain or whether they come to express support, we all would look at our Supreme Court justices as being higher, as being above us commoners. I mean, they hold the highest position in the judicial branch of government. They're on a, they're on a different level. But when one justice of the Supreme Court speaks to another justice of the Supreme Court, they are seeing eye to eye. They are on level playing field. They are speaking peer to peer, colleague to colleague. So it is when Paul comes before the Sanhedrin, when Paul comes before this council, he is not coming in scared of this bunch of strangers. Paul looks at these men as equal to equals. He looks intently. He looks eye to eye. And we see how this confidence that Paul has comes out because Paul doesn't wait to be called upon. Paul speaks first and addresses the Sanhedrin, addresses the council as brethren. Well, we would say in our day, brothers. And this is what he said. I'm going to sneeze in a minute, but I'll give it up. Paul said, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That's a bold statement that Paul makes. I'm not sure I know of anyone who can make this claim living with a perfectly good conscience. But Paul here intended by this statement to say that his conscience is clear and has been clear. Even when he was one of the Pharisees, even when he was one of their number, even when he zealously and violently persecuted Jesus Christ and his church, even then he had a perfectly good conscience. Now, Paul would say and did say that what he did in persecuting the church was sin. It was wrong. It was against his Lord. But he believed at the time when he was doing those things that he was serving God. He believed that what he was doing was good and right. He slept well at night because he had a perfectly good, we would say clear conscience. Beloved, this teaches us something about conscience, something that's very important. We cannot trust our conscience to rule 
in our lives. Just stay with me for a moment. Someone like Paul or like any of us who lives every moment in doing what their conscience approves and in not doing the things that their conscience warns against, that person can still be doing wrong with a perfectly clear conscience. Paul's case proves that they could be doing horrible, violent sin. Paul sanctioned murder. And he did so with the approval of his own conscience. How many people in our day live like this? They live by conscience. They have that Disney morality. They follow the Jiminy Cricket advice. Let your conscience be your guide. We have folks who think that God agrees with every opinion they have and supports everything they say and do. And they say, well, I'm just living according to my conscience. And then amazingly, the rest of the world looks and says, well, okay, if you're living according to your conscience, then who am I? Christians, we do this as well. I don't know how many times I've spoken to Christians whose conscience is different from God's law. Sometimes it's because they have a conscience that's more lax than God's law. Well, my conscience allows me to do things that the Bible really forbids. But my conscience is clear. I'm okay. Sometimes, and just as bad, Christians have a conscience that they would say is more strict or more stringent, more more than God's law. Well, I know you do such and such, but I couldn't never. I would never. Well, does the Bible forbid it? Well, no, but it's just my conscience is more strict than God's law. The problem is our consciences are often trained by and taught by a moral code that we inherited, that we received, that we got from maybe from parents, maybe from a pastor or preachers or or Bible teachers in the past. And we try then to impose that moral code that our conscience is trained by on others. Beloved, Paul could say that he had a clear conscience, but he wasn't innocent. The human conscience must be trained by the word of God. Our conscience must be ruled and restrained by God's law. Listen to what our confession says from the chapter on liberty of conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now, I would like to say that's almost enough said, but I'm glad they went on. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it, our conscience, free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in his word. Our consciences should be free from all of that and should only be held captive by the Lord. 
and by his word. Martin Luther was correct when he said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. But our conscience cannot reign. It must be ruled. It must be reigned over by God through his word. Just because your conscience is clear does not mean you're right. Paul was a persecutor of the church with a good conscience. But now as Paul stands before the Sanhedrin and he says, I have lived my life up to this day with a perfectly good conscience. Now Paul is a Christian. And the statement that he makes is that he is still living with a perfectly good conscience. So this statement to the council is you have me here before you as if I've done something wrong. But my conscience is clear. I have done nothing wrong. And by saying he's done nothing wrong, he infers, because they have arrested him and brought him in, he infers that they are wrong. And that's when we have the exchange in verses 2 through 5, when Paul is, as we say where I grew up, popped in the mouth. Paul maintains his innocence and by implication, he says the council and this trial, him being before them, is out of order. And Ananias commands that the man standing next to Paul hit him in the mouth. And the man hits Paul. What a shock that must have been. Punch in the mouth coming. And I don't know if it was open handed or closed fit. We don't know what that is. But whatever it was, it came out of nowhere, just came out of the blue. And it was illegal. Paul points this out. That they had an innocent until proven guilty principle. And now Paul has had this punishment, this, this blow meted out to him without due process. And Paul doesn't just accept the blow and, and just say, well, I'll, I'll just let it go. He calls them out. He was hitting the mouth and he calls them out on it. And he does so with all the political correctness and sensitivity that we all appreciate so much. God will strike you, you hypocrite. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You whitewashed wall. That's you're a hypocrite. And then he explains how what was just done toward him. Here you are standing in judgment. You're standing here as keepers and defenders of the law. And the first thing you do is violate the law by having me, ordering me to be struck. Friends, we learn here that it is good for us to stand up for ourselves when we are wronged. It's a good thing. Paul did it here. Now, now we can't take it to revenge. And we're not to rebel. Sorry to disappoint you. It's disappointing, right? Right? Because that's where we want to go. We either want to go to revenge or we want to go to rebellion. We can't take it there. But to lawfully defend ourselves when wrong is good and right. And that's what Paul does here. Now, I'm not sure if it was casual Friday or if the Sanhedrin were in uniform. I'm not sure why Paul didn't recognize the high priest. It could have been because there was the high priest there was the high priest emeritus. There was the high priest that was appointed by the Romans who the Jews would have said is not really the high priest, but he kind of was the high priest. Maybe it was that Paul didn't know really who was holding what office. 
But for whatever reason, Paul did not recognize the high priest. Now, he says this thing. May God strike you, you hypocrite, you whitewashed wall. And when he learns that he has just made this statement about the high priest and called the high priest a hypocrite, how does he react? Think about how you would react. The attitude of most of us would be, I don't care who you are. I said what I said, I meant it. I say it again. But Paul doesn't react that way. He understands that there is respect that belongs to the office, regardless of what man is holding the office. The office of high priest was a God appointed office that was worthy of proper respect. And Paul, after being told that he had just spoken against the high priest, he himself cites the law of God, which forbids speaking evil of a ruler, as though he is accepting blame, as he's accepting. I didn't know that was a high priest. I should I wouldn't have done that had I known. Brother, we would do learn, we would do good to learn from the apostle. This respect for the God-ordained office flows out of respect for God himself. There seems to be very little respect today for the church, for the elders of the church. And I'm not speaking about this church or any specific church, but just in general in the world today. Paul would never have spoken, knowingly spoken against the high priest. And the fact that his statement was true Somebody's thinking that, right? Well, it's true. That doesn't make a difference. Paul respected the office which God had appointed. And brothers and sisters, we should do the same. Let me say this in uh, just, just hedging some error that we might fall into. I had a friend once who told me he could never say anything against Joel Osteen. Now, I'm not trying to pick out Joel Osteen, but that's who we were talking about at the time. And he said, I can never say anything against Joel Osteen. And he cited this, this verse, and he cited, um, don't lay hands on the Lord's anointed. Don't speak evil against God's minister. But I stand here today telling you I have no problem speaking against men like Joel Osteen, other charlatans like him. Because they are anything but God's anointed. They are not ministers of God. And therefore, ministers of God must call those charlatans out as wolves among the sheep. So I just want to kind of put some fences around how we respect the office. Okay, we need to pick up the pace so we we'll have time to cover the material. Let's read verses 6 through 10. But for perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other group Pharisees. Paul began crying out in the, in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Let me pause right there. Some people have said, this is Paul uh, trying, to, trying to mess up their thing and trying to confuse the matter. But why is Paul on trial? He's on trial because one was raised from the dead. And Paul was a follower of the one raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. So this is relevant to the discussion. 
And, and Paul brings this out, continuing in verse 7. He said, he said this. Oh, let me back up. As he said this, there occurred a great division between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection of the dead, nor angels, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. We're in verse 8. Let me just help you remember what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, if you ever need to know. The, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, and therefore they did not believe in heaven. So they were sad, you see. You'll never forget. But the Pharisees acknowledged the resurrection of the dead and angels, and they acknowledged them all. Verse 9. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And with great a great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So the Roman commander had brought Paul here before this council. The whole purpose was to find out what it is that they are accusing him of. What is it that they have charged him with? So should he keep Paul under arrest? Should he let him go? And as he stands there and this whole fighting amongst themselves breaks out, there's such confusion, he can't get his answer. So he takes Paul and they get out of there. He can't make any sense. They can't make heads or tails of what's going on. So they take Paul back to the barracks. And then we have verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Who is the Lord here? None other than Jesus Christ, the same Lord who encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, now stands at his bedside and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. First words of the Lord, take courage. Take courage. Mark Twain said courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, but not absence of fear. John Wayne said it a different way. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. We read about Paul standing before his enemies, speaking plain truth in the face of opposition, being unwavering in his ministry. But Paul was a man of like passions as we. And that certainly means he knew fear. How could he not be afraid? He was hated, reviled, beaten, Stoned and left for dead, arrested and bound on many occasions, fear would be familiar to Paul. But still he moved forward, still he stood, still he spoke boldly. How is it that Paul overcame his fear and found courage? Is he 
the superhero that we all think him to be? I think not. The key to Paul's courage is the same key for you to find courage. The key to Paul's courage is that his courage was resting firmly in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what the Lord said. Jesus offered courage. Take courage. And then he gave him a promise. Paul, you've done, you've done this, you've done well witnessing in Jerusalem. You will witness in Rome. He'll bring the gospel there. We have that in verse 11, and in verses 12 through 15, we have an immediate opportunity for Paul to believe the promise that Jesus Christ had just given him. And to find courage. 12 through 15. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until the day that they killed Paul. There was more than 40 of them who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, the council, notified the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, will be ready to slay him before he comes near the place. This is a diabolical plot to kill Paul. But we must remember, as Paul remembered, Jesus made him a promise. Paul you're going to Rome. So it is impossible that the Jews would kill Paul in Jerusalem because Jesus said he's going to Rome. I guess Paul could have been thinking, well, if they kill me, the Lord's got to raise me from the dead because I got to go to Rome. But for whatever reason, Jesus promised you're going to Rome. So he, he finds courage in the Lord's word. Now, I don't want us to spend too much time worrying about these men who took the oath they would not eat nor drink until they killed Paul. You might wonder, well, they surely starved to death right after this. This is just super quick. Well, don't worry. It was, it was not that bad. They had a loophole in their vows and in their oaths that if they were not able to perform, then they could get out. That's, that's the kind of thing we're dealing We say things like, let your word be your bond and the Bible says let your yes be yes and your no be no but they did not have a problem with that so we know here the lack of integrity in these 40 men who took the oath these 40 men came then to the chief priests and elders to tell them about the oath that they had taken and chief priests and elders of integrity would tell them we will have no part of your deal we, we will not be involved with this oath, this wrongful oath that you have taken. And this is God's law, God's sixth commandment that you're talking about breaking. And we certainly uphold the law and we will not be a part of breaking the law. Thou shalt not kill, even if it's to get it called. Now, that's what elders and uh, the chief priests of integrity would say. But here we find that there is no integrity in the chief priest nor in the elders. 
the very men who should be upholding the law of God, keeping the law and teaching others to do so. The religious leaders hereby sanction the killing of Paul. And now we come to verses 16 through 22 and we learn Paul has a nephew. As a matter of fact, we learn Paul has a sister, a sister with a son. And we don't know, but we'll get to it. Let's read 16 through 22. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Now let me pause there and say, some believe that, that Paul's sister's husband was on the Sanhedrin. And that may have been how this young man heard that he was there with his father. However, he heard of it. And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Leave this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. Verse 18, so he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to leave this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Here's where I think we see God's providence in blazing light. Obvious, clear, plain, unmistakable providence. Consider these facts. This young man, Paul's nephew, steps onto the pages of Acts from nowhere. We know, we just found out he has a sister and a nephew. We know nothing about this man. No name. What, what, how old was he? We don't know. We know nothing about him. We don't even know if he was there to warn Paul out of his own concern. Or was he there because he was sent there by his mother or by someone else. Remember, Paul said he had suffered the loss of all things for the cause of Christ. And we believe that all things included the relationship with his family. He was probably shunned, outcast. Nobody's speaking to him, but somebody's looking out for him. Either this nephew or someone sends the nephew. This young man is an unknown. And God used an unknown to accomplish his work. The young man is ushered before the Roman commander and he's mostly unconcerned. We don't see this guy looking out for Paul's interest, for Paul's safety. He's just trying to do his job. If he can keep the peace, then he would probably rather not be involved in their drama. This man is unconcerned. But Mr. Unconcerned, when Mr. Unknown walks in, unconcerned takes him aside for some reason, providence of God, and speaks to him and hears him, God will work his providential plan. He will accomplish his own perfect 
purpose through the actions of an unknown and an unconcerned. Beloved, how many unknowns and unconcerns are there in your life that you're not even aware of? In God's work, God is prominent. And we worry ourselves about things of life and how things are going to work out. After we've fulfilled our responsibilities, are we able to lay the end results in the hand of God and trust Him and trust His providence? Or do we have a hard time trusting in the providence of God? Maybe you don't think God will do what He said. Maybe you don't think God is working all things together for good to those who love Him. Well, he can work some things together for good. I mean, that, of course, he can work some things together for good. Maybe God can work all things together for an okay out, not like, you know, just a middle of the road outcome. But all things worked for good? Can he do that? That's the promise of Romans chapter 8. And we have evidence of how God does that here. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. The Roman commander called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. That would be um, 9 o'clock by my calculation. To proceed to Caesarea. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. That is horses. Now any of us might think, well, yeah, it's a good idea to get Paul out of town. And you know what? Maybe a bodyguard's a great idea. But God has taken Paul to Rome and God is working his provident plan. And the sovereign God of heaven used an unknown and an unconcerned to provide Paul with this Escape. An escape. Look at the text. Paul had 470 bodyguards. 470 trained soldier bodyguards. Remember, Paul has no control. Just coasting here. God is providentially working. 470 bodyguards. And it's believed that. A regular human, like maybe a, a soldier in tip-top shape might have been able to make this journey on foot in 24 hours. But this would have been a multi-day journey. Unless we had horses. Oh, so God says, all right, we'll, we'll get horses. 470 bodyguards and a horse for Paul to ride on. God worked all things for the good of his servant Paul. And for his own glory. Now remember Paul. Paul heard the plot. To kill him. He, he knows about that. And he sent the young man to talk, talk to the commander. But now the young man's gone. Paul's sitting there. All he knows is there's a plot to kill me. And I've tried to get the news to the commander. I know about the plot to kill But Paul doesn't know about 470 bodyguards. 
Paul doesn't know they're saddling up a horse for him. Paul is there in that moment to remember the words of the Lord and to trust in his promises. Boy, that's easy to read on the page and say Paul did that, isn't it? It's hard when it's me. It's hard when I don't know all the details. And I'm not able to work. I'm not able to feel in control to say, well, you know what? God's in control. So, so we need to learn from Paul. The next time we hear about that fearful thing, we no longer have a job for you here. Or I have a difficult diagnosis to deliver. To get like close to home where we live, I, I mean, we know some of the things that's going on in our. When you're admitted to the hospital, you don't know how things are going to turn out. When all the electrical in your house goes belly up for a long period of time, when your car won't crank, what am I going to do? Maybe it's the alternator. Maybe it's just a loose battery connection. I don't know. Maybe it's the whole car's got to be. Who knows? These are hard things. When we're moving and our whole life is turned upside down and we feel like we're in control of nothing. When we, can't, when we think we can't make it through the day. When, when everything seems to be pressing down on us and, and we feel like we're going to be crushed by the weight of it. Someone just mentioned today, when death comes out of nowhere, because it always comes out of nowhere. In those times, Christians, remember the Lord. Remember his word. Remember his promises. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm with you always. I will not let you be burdened more than you can bear. I will supply. What's that next word? All. All your needs. I'll supply all your needs. I have come to give you life that is abundant. Remember the promises of God and then preach those things to yourself, to your own soul. God is with me. God has his hand on the brake, on the thermostat. God is in control and I will not be overcome because he is provident. He will not overwhelm me. God is providing all my needs according to his riches and glory. God's providence is for my good and for his glory. Just in the hallway, somebody shared with me a story of God's providence. And it was one of those times when we are glad to hear of God's providence and we want to tell others, look what God has done. It's so good. But when those things come and it's bad news, 
And it's hard news. And we don't know how to deal with it. Is God less provident? Is God less sovereign? Christian, if you knew what was best for you, you would choose what God has chosen for you. God's providence is for our good and for his glory. Lord, we thank you that you are God and that we are not. We thank you that you are provident over all things, that you have decreed whatsoever comes to pass so we can look in history, ancient history or very recent history and see what comes to pass and we can say it is by the provident decree of God. God, help us, weak as we are, weak in faith, slow to trust you, holding on tightly with both hands, white knuckle gripping. Help us, Lord, to learn to trust and obey. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.